Thank you, Mickey. Uh, good morning and welcome again. My name is uh, Bill Gorman and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And let me just add my welcome uh, to Mickey's. We're so pleased that you've uh, joined us here this morning and um, we're just delighted that you're, you're here uh, today. Um, if you are a, a student or a child and you want to f- kind of follow along with the message, we always have the, the Kid Connect, which is in the back. So um, always feel free to pick those up as you come in. It's a great way to kind of track along um, with the message. So if you're uh, a child or a student and you don't have one of those, um, if your mom and dad are okay, you can go, go back and, and grab one. Um, it's always a great way to, to help kind of track along with the message. Um, and so this morning, as we uh, get ready to look into uh, this text that Mickey read for us, I always love to start our time with prayer, just as an acknowledgement that, that we need God's help to understand His Word. And uh, if we're really going to be transformed and changed by it, it's not just a matter of us um, sort of bringing our own faculties to it, but we need God, we need His Spirit. And so let's pray and ask for God's help now in, in understanding and applying His Word in our lives. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the treasure, the gift that is your word, and that it reveals the living word, Jesus, who is um, on display in this passage and in the passages that we heard read even as we were singing um, this morning. And so I pray that as we look carefully together at these verses in Luke 5, that you would um, help us to see Jesus perhaps for the first time, um, or if we've known him for a long time, Help us be once again renewed by just the beauty, the incomprehensibility, um, the wonder of who Jesus, God made flesh, the God-man is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was coming home uh, from work, and as I was pulling into the driveway, a song came on the radio uh, that both sort of musically as well as lyrically, it immediately grabbed my attention. And I had one of those driveway moments where you're already at your destination, but you're just sitting there listening to the radio. And normally that happens for me when there's some really uh, compelling story on on NPR that I just have to hear uh, the end of. But that time, it was the song on the radio. And, And the song that it happened to be was the new one from the band Portugal, the man called Modern Jesus. Um, And while it was the kind of the beat, the tune that first drew me in, it was the chorus that caused me to stop and really listen. And, And the lyrics of the chorus go this way. They say, don't pray for us. We don't need no modern Jesus to roll with us. The only rule we need is never giving up. And the only faith we have is faith in us. And I think these lyrics that the songwriter John Gorley penned in this song, I think they really actually capture um, perhaps what some of you here this morning think, but what many in our neighborhood here and, and certainly in our city feel when, when they think about Jesus. And, and during an interview on NPR, uh, the reporter asked John Gorley, the, the man who wrote this song, what he was trying to communicate in the song, Modern Jesus. And, and this is how the songwriter replied. He says, oh, it, it's so simple. He says, actually, it's, it's the most simple track on the record. I mean, it's really about believing in yourself. I mean, you can't accomplish anything if you're just hoping and putting your faith in someone else. It's about believing in yourself. If you want it, you got to grab it. And I think as 21st century modern people living in a, in a major urban city, Kansas City, it's hard, it isn't hard, rather, to see where John Gurley is coming from. I mean, do we really need Jesus? I mean, what does a a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago 
have to say, have to do with my life here in Kansas City in 2014? And, and I think for those of us who are here this morning, we consider ourselves Christians, consider ourselves followers of Jesus. It, it can be interest, or easy to sort of immediately kind of point our finger at John Gurley and say, man, this guy's way off. He just doesn't get who Jesus is. But for those of us who would have that mindset, I, I would say, but how well do we really know Jesus? I think all too often, all of us, and, and myself included in this, even though we would say we have faith in Jesus, really live as though the only faith we have is faith in us. That, that if things are really going to get done, if, if um, my needs are really going to be met, it, it's up to me to get it done. I mean, we may say a, a quick prayer here or there, but, but functionally, we really often live as though the only faith we have is faith in us. But then there are moments when we're desperate, when things seem truly hopeless, and when we've come to the end of our resources, the end of ourselves, and we start looking for someone, for anyone who can help. That's the situation that the people in this passage we're looking at this morning found themselves in. They are desperate. And what they discover, and what I hope we'll discover too as we follow them in this passage this morning, is that while Jesus is rarely who we expect, he's exactly who we need. That while Jesus is rarely who we expect, and often even not who we want, he's exactly who we need. So let's take a closer look at this passage in Luke chapter 5 together. So the scene in Luke 5 opens with these words. It says, one, On one of those days, he, Jesus, was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Judea and Galilee and from Jerusalem. People are coming all over from Jesus, and this is just listening, kind of people who are, who are wondering about who Jesus really is, who have some questions, who are kind of against Jesus. They're coming from all over the entire region and then Luke adds, almost as just kind of a hint of where the story's going. It's, it's almost just a quick aside, but it, it hints at where the story is headed. The end of verse 17. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. But in the first instance here, it says Jesus is teaching. Um, he's in this house teaching. He's not, this isn't a, a healing service. He hasn't invited a bunch of folks to come and, and receive healing. It says Jesus is teaching. This is a teaching moment. And the place is packed. Have you ever been to someone's house? It's like a, maybe a big open house at a graduation or a wedding reception. And the place is just packed. You can hardly, hardly move. Or, or maybe you've been to uh, the first Fridays down in the crossroads. And you walk into one of the galleries. The Leedy Vocals is always this. It's just packed. You go in there and it's like shoulder to shoulder people. Um, this is what the house is like. It's crammed full of people. The, the image that came to my mind, I'm a runner, so it, the image that immediately came to my mind is being in that starting corral, like on a hot day as you're getting ready to start a, a race. So moments before, everyone's crammed in, you can't move, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's smelly, and, and you just can't move. And this is, you know, I mean, they weren't wearing deodorant uh, here in the first century, so this place is hot, it's sweaty, people are crammed together, so just kind of smell and, and feel what it would have been like in this house. Um, everyone's crammed in, wanting to hear Jesus. Because again, at this point, Jesus has begun to gain some significant notability. 
People are coming from all over to see him. And and Luke points out this group of the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And these were the religious authorities of the day. And they also had a lot of social influence as well. And they were finding that Jesus was challenging that authority and influence in surprising and unexpected ways. And they, along with all the others, have crammed into this cramped, sweaty house listening to what Jesus has to say that day. Verse 18, And behold, some of the men, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So as Jesus is is teaching this group of people, these men show up carrying their paralyzed friend, and and, and apparently they hadn't gotten the memo that this was really just a a teaching moment, that Jesus wasn't doing healing at this point, Um, or or if they did, they they didn't really care. They were desperate. We don't know much about this paralyzed man. We we don't know how he became paralyzed or or how long he had been paralyzed. Maybe maybe he had gotten sick and lost use of his legs. Maybe he was hurt in an accident. But somehow he had lost the use of his legs, and he is desperate. And you can imagine what what happened earlier in that day. One of his friends sees some people sort of, they're streaming to this house, and and he asks one of them, what's what's going on over at the house there? And they say, the guy Jesus, he's he's here today. We're going to go hear him teach. And immediately this guy's thinking, this is our chance. And and so he runs and he finds his buddy and says, look, Jesus is here. Let's, let's gather up some friends. I think we can take you there. Maybe, maybe he'll heal you. Maybe I've, I've heard in other villages he's been healing people. We've, we've got to get you there. And so he gathers up some friends and they start carrying their buddy toward this house. And, and you can imagine they're, they're, they're carrying him down the street and other people are sort of passing him up on, on the way to the house and they can't move as fast because they're, they're carrying their buddy. And they're, you can kind of feel the desperation building. Are they, they know it's a small house. Are they going to get there in time or are they going to be able to fit in? And when they arrive, their hearts sink. The house is packed. People are out the door. People are crowded around the windows. I mean, there's no way one of them, much less four or five of them carrying their friend, can make it through the crowd to get to Jesus. But when would their friend have another chance like this? They they were sure that if they could just lay him before Jesus, there was hope that that he could be healed, that he could be freed, he could be released from this this crushing disability. I mean, they they can't give up, not not now, not this close. And so in that moment, you can just kind of imagine them sharing all this kind of, the the ones gathered there, kind of this, "Are, are you thinking what I'm thinking kind of look? And they grab their friend, and this is where the story starts to get a little crazy. Look at verse 19. And finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. So these guys are going to stop at nothing to bring their friend 
to Jesus. They're not going to stop at anything. And in homes in the first century Palestine, they, they were typically had an external staircase on, on the outside to get to the roof because you would dry clothes up there or that kind of thing. And so I think I even may have a picture. I'm not sure. Yeah, so you kind of get this idea. This is maybe what one of these houses would look like. So they carry their friend up that staircase. And, and the roof would have been made of slabs of mud that had been baked in the sun and then kind of placed over the roof beams. And so they carry their friend up the staircase. They set him on the roof. And they begin to start digging and prying and stomping. Now imagine for a moment you're inside the house listening to Jesus. And as you're listening to Jesus teach, you start hearing some kind of scuffling. Is there like a sort of squirrel up there? What's, and some creaking above you. And you, you kind of ignore it at first. And then there's this loud scraping sound. And, and dust sort of starts falling down from the ceiling. And then all of a sudden, there's this shaft of life sort of pierces through the dim and crowded room. And Jesus stops speaking. And, and everyone looks up at this rapidly widening hole in the ceiling. And there's kind of a murmur that passes through the crowd as people stand spellbound, necks craned upward. And people near the, the, the hole that's opening up, are kind of, they're kind of pushing back, trying to get out of the way of the pile of kind of dirt and pieces of roof that are accumulating on the floor. And then after a moment, everything goes quiet. And then through the opening, a man appears, and he's being lowered down into bed right in front of Jesus. And you can imagine the eyes immediately like going from this guy, and then they're looking right to Jesus. What is he going to do? What's Jesus going to do in this moment? And I can imagine Jesus is probably has a kind of a little bit of a grin, maybe a smile on his face in this moment. Because you look at verse 20, he's clearly pleased. He sees their faith. Do you see that in the first part of verse 20? He says, and when he saw their faith, Faith is what pleases Jesus more than anything else. Just a note there. And this is actually an amazing picture of what faith is. This is a visible expression of faith, not, not a mere attitude. You see, faith isn't a mental assent to a set of ideas. Faith is a reckless desire to get close to Jesus. Let me say that again. I don't, I don't want you to miss it. Faith is not just a mental ascent to a set of ideas. It's, it's a reckless desire to get close to Jesus. Now, if the whole man being lowered down through the roof thing wasn't surprise enough, what happens next is truly shocking. Look at verse 20. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this was just about the last thing that anyone in the room was expecting to Jesus to say at this point. I mean, really, Jesus? I mean, they hadn't confessed any sins. They wouldn't, like, I didn't kind of lower get down and say, Jesus, forgive me. Um, they hadn't asked for forgiveness. Uh, that wasn't why they were there. So, in a way, this is kind of a letdown, Right? I mean, it's like, hey, that's cool, Jesus, about the sin forgiveness thing and all, but, but I was hoping you could do something about my legs and the fact I can't walk. And anyway, these guys, they, they knew how to get their sins forgiven. I mean, 
they, they knew where the temple was in Jerusalem. That's why God had instituted the sacrifices in the temple in the first place, right? So what Jesus is doing in this moment is really odd. What is he doing pronouncing forgiveness of sins? That's, that's not his place. And this is what outrages the scribes and the Pharisees. If you keep reading in verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? They're kind of whispering over in the corner. Who can forgive sin but God alone? You see, they understand exactly what Jesus is doing. God was the person who granted forgiveness, and the temple was the place where forgiveness was received And Jesus is now claiming that he is the person and the place of forgiveness. Jesus is making himself out to be God, and he's usurping the place of the temple. And in this moment, Jesus is not who anyone wanted or expected. I mean, Jesus actually in this moment, he's kind of disappointing everyone in the room. Um, The teachers are angry, the crowd doesn't know what to expect, and the guy still can't walk. I mean, they wanted to hear a healer, or they wanted a healer or a teacher, or in the case of the religious leaders, they wanted someone who would affirm their place of power and influence. And with this proclamation of forgiveness, Jesus shocks or disappoints everyone. But watch what happens next. Look at verses 22 and 23. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, that's the thoughts of the Pharisees and scribes, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk? Now just pause quick here. Without making a huge deal out of it, Luke, the author of this account, lets us know that Jesus knows, us, knows exactly what we're thinking. <laughs> he knows exactly what's going on in our minds. Nothing is hidden from him because the text doesn't say he heard them speaking. I mean, Luke could have, Luke could have easily said that, but he goes out of his way to say he perceived, he had intimate knowledge of, of their thinking. Jesus perceived their thoughts. And so Jesus challenges them with this question. He says, which is easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? And before the scribes and the Pharisees have a chance to answer or make a reply, Jesus continues in verses 24 and 25. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a title Jesus often uses for himself, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. I love how Eugene Peterson, um, Bible scholar, pastor, renders this in the message. He says, which is simpler, to say, I forgive your sins or get up and start walking. Well, just so it's clear that I'm the Son of Man and have authority to do either or both. He now spoke directly to the paraplegic, get up, take your bedroll, and go home. And now everyone is, is really stunned. This man who they probably all knew, this is Capernaum, it was a decent-sized city. Most of the people in that room probably knew this guy. They knew he was paralyzed, and they hadn't seen him walk in what may have been years, possibly decades. We don't know how long this guy had been paralyzed. They hadn't seen this guy move like this in a long time. Some of them probably had never seen him move. And he stands up, and he walks home. 
he's now fully restored, which is actually a lot more than we can say for the guy's roof at this point because it's got a giant hole in it. And I just wonder, what was the homeowner thinking as all this is happening? I mean, whoever owned this house, there's this hole being made in his roof. And I wonder in that moment, I mean, if I was that guy, I'd start wondering, exactly what does my homeowner's insurance actually cover? Is this this an act of God or where does this kind of fall in the policy? I'm not sure. And and I I wonder if he's kind of pulled Jesus aside as he's leaving. He said, Jesus, this was was amazing what you did uh, for that guy healing his legs and all that. Is there any chance he could do something about the roof? I, I, I don't know. Um, in Luke's account of this event, it closes with verse 26 as people are dispersing. And Luke summarizes this way An amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and they were filled with awe, saying, Why, We have seen extraordinary things today. And that little word uh, translated extraordinary, it's, it's only used here. Um, in the New Testament. And it's a word that means that which is unusual in the sense of contrary to expectations. Unusual in the sense that it's contrary to expectations. Jesus is rarely who we expect. But he's always who we need. It's actually the word which our English word paradoxes derive from. This was certainly not what they expected to experience that day. You can imagine that there were quite a few conversations over dinner that night and in the weeks to follow about what had happened that day as people asked the question, the question that we're asking this morning, which is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And it's clear in this passage that Jesus, again, is rarely who we expect. And yet, as we reflect on what happened here, we also begin to see that he's exactly who we need. So we need to ask the question, what do you expect from Jesus? And and do those expectations really fit reality? The religious leaders, the crowds, the men bringing their friend for healing, they all had expectations about who Jesus was and and what he should or could or or would do that day. So so what are your expectations? What, What expectations do you have of Jesus? I mean, maybe your expectation is that Jesus is is really unnecessary. I mean, maybe you really resonate with the song lyrics we read at the beginning. I think a lot of people in our culture do. Jesus just really isn't that necessary. Maybe you expect him to be a a good teacher who gives good advice. Maybe we sort of treat him like a a good luck charm that, you know, kind of wards off evil and superstitions as, as long as you kind of say the right things and pray a prayer every now and again. Maybe you expect him to leave you alone, to stay comfortably on the margins of your life. I think I often find myself expecting Jesus to affirm my agenda, to affirm my plans, to affirm my picture of what the future should look like in my family or my work, rather than allowing him to set that agenda. Whatever our expectation of Jesus is coming in, when, when we go to the Gospels, the, the books of the New Testament that record Jesus' life. 
we find that he is constantly challenging, pushing, even shattering those expectations. Because Jesus is rarely who we expect, but he's always who we need. And this leads us to a second question, which is, do you really trust Jesus to give you what you need? Do you really trust Jesus to truly provide for you what you need? And and here's the hard thing with that, because most of the time we don't really know what we need. Uh, It's not hard for us to know what we want, but most of the time we don't really truly know at a deep level what it is we, we need. Do we trust Jesus to give us what we really need I mean, when the man in the story who, who couldn't walk showed up in front of Jesus, Jesus says his greatest need isn't working legs, but a transformed inner life that can only come when sins are forgiven. And, and you think about that, to have you land in front of Jesus looking for healing and him to say your sins are forgiven, it's almost kind of offensive. Like, Jesus, I, I, what are you saying here? You're calling me a sinner, and he calls every one of us a sinner. And he says, that is our greatest need. The the paralytic didn't come that day seeking to have his sins forgiven, but that was his greatest need. Last week, um, Pastor Paul made this statement in his message, and it stuck with me all week. It's been kept going through my mind. He said, sin is the worst thing, and that isn't hyperbole. Sin is literally the worst thing. And Jesus affirms that here. He says the man's sins are far worse than the problem with his legs. Do we think about sin that way? As I look out at the people who are gathered in this room, and I know many of your stories, stories of cancer, stories of losing loved one to disease and dementia, of, of marriages that are struggling, of, of unfulfilled longing for spouses or for children. We feel a lot of needs in this room. But Jesus says to each of us here, whatever our situation we find ourselves in, that our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins. Do you trust Jesus to give you what you need, even if it's not what you want? Do you want God to fix you or a problem in your life, or do you want a relationship with him? So often we want what Jesus has to offer, but we don't really want Jesus But Jesus isn't just a doctor who will fix part of you. He's a savior who wants to rescue all of you. God says to his people in Isaiah chapter 43, I love the language. He says, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. When Jesus rescues someone, he makes you his. He can't just sort of give you life without giving you himself. And so often we want life, but we don't really want Jesus. Jesus always liberates and restores those who he forgives. Now, this doesn't mean that he will always heal every disease 
right? At some point in our lives, a prayer for healing isn't going to be answered. The, the death rate is still 100%. Every one of us someday is going to ask God to heal us, and he's going to say no. And even when he was on earth, Jesus didn't heal everyone he came in contact with. But every miracle of healing that we see in the Gospels, it's a tiny little signpost that's pointing to what God will do in a massive way in the new heavens and the new earth where he restores everything to the way it's supposed to be. And these miracles are little kind of foretaste of the future coming back into the present, reminding us of this is where it's headed. One day everything will be brought to new again for those who have set their faith in Jesus. Because it's faith that pleases Jesus. The man doesn't come offering anything other than his broken body and his trust in Jesus. And he's so pleased with that. Which leads us to our final question this morning. Does your faith compel you to action? You see, again, faith isn't just kind of a mental ascent or, or feeling transcendent. It's a reckless desire to get close to Jesus. And it's, does that involve feelings? Does it involve right thinking? Yes, that's even why we're doing this series, asking the question, does it matter what we believe? It does matter what we believe. But, but faith isn't just about getting a set of ideas right in your mind. It's about loving a person, about pursuing a relationship with a person. So, so is your life, is, is my life marked by a passion to be near Jesus, to know him and be known by him, to be transformed by him? In this account, the, the friends of Jesus, they, they have faith that, that led them to carry their friend to a rooftop, rip a hole in the roof, and then drop their friend down through the hole. And when I read that passage I, this week, I just asked the question, what, what are we willing to do to bring our friends to Jesus? And this guy's, these guys were stopping at nothing. What are we willing to do to, to bring one another, to bring our friends, to bring our neighbors to Christ? Or what about the, the paralytic? His, his faith led him to obey Jesus. And to, when Jesus says, stand and walk, that, that he does it. You see, in a relationship with Jesus, love and obedience are complementary, not contradictory ideas. Jesus says in, in John chapter 14, that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. The way that we love Jesus is by obeying him. Faith enables true obedience. It doesn't replace it. Faith doesn't take the place of, of learning to follow Christ, but it enables it, it empowers it, it enables it to be actually something that's truly pleasing to God. Grace always comes first, and then the response is obedience. We don't obey in order to be accepted. We obey because we have been accepted. So does our faith lead us to obedience. And then I think we see faith in the crowds as well, at least to some extent. The crowds glorified and worshiped God when they saw what Jesus had done. Does our faith lead us to glorify God, to praise him? And I think glorify God is, is definitely one of these beautiful, true, powerful phrases that's also really churchy. <laughs> and, and I think it's one that, that many of us have heard and, and maybe we even use, and, but if someone really presses us on, what does it mean to glorify God? We kind of like, well, I'm not sure, but you know, I've heard Bill say it before, and it seems like something we're supposed to do. Um, 
So just to make it really simple, to glorify God is to make a big deal about God. To glorify God is to make a big deal about God. So what do we make a big deal about in our lives? What do we glorify? Faith responds by making a big deal about Jesus. So who is Jesus? There's so much we could say. And we heard a number of passages read that highlight who, and we're just scratching the surface here this morning. Uh, Our statement of faith, which we're looking at in this series, and I think there's even some copies of and a bookmark on the main table, this is how it summarizes, this is what it affirms about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God incarnate, means he came and he took on flesh, he became a human being. God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person, two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Jesus is rarely who we expect, but exactly who we need. I love how Tim Keller says it. He says, Jesus is unpredictable yet reliable, gentle yet powerful, authoritative yet humble, human yet divine. Jesus addresses our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins at the greatest cost to himself. Let me say that again. Jesus addresses our greatest need, the forgiveness of sins, at the greatest cost to himself. Jesus asked that question in the text. He says, which is easier, to, to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk, to heal someone? And in, in the implication, Jesus is saying, look, for, for you here on earth, it's gonna, it seems really easy just to say your sins are forgiven. It's a lot harder to have someone be healed. But for Jesus, healing someone was nothing. If we were paying attention to some of those passages that were read earlier from the band, I mean, Jesus is the creator of the universe. He raised people from the dead. Healing a pair of legs was nothing for Jesus. But the forgiveness of sins, however, it cost him everything. He gave all of his life on the cross. Nothing was more difficult, nothing was more costly than Jesus forgiving sins. You see, there's a great irony when Jesus asked that question, which is more difficult. For Jesus, healing was nothing. Forgiving cost him everything. And yet because of his great love for his father and his great love for you, there was nothing he was more glad to do. Jesus is rarely who you expect, but he's exactly who you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that you have sent your son Jesus, the one who though he is always challenging what we assume about him, he's exactly who we need. And he never disappoints those who he redeems. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would renew in us, create in us perhaps for the first time, the faith in Christ that leads to regeneration, to transformation, to joy, to true freedom. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who shatters all of our expectations. We pray this in his name for his glory. Amen.
Well, each week at the Brookside campus, we celebrate communion as a way of of being reminded of the good news of the gospel, the good news that there is a massive divide between us and God, but that's been bridged in the gospel. And that the forgiveness of sins is possible. At the core of the message of the New Testament is the proclamation that Jesus has come to forgive sins. And that's what we celebrate in communion. It's a tangible reminder of that good news. And, and maybe this morning you're feeling overwhelmed by sin or, or there's some other need in your life. You just, you just feel like, I just need someone to pray with me. And so during the communion time, certainly I invite you to participate in communion, but also, again, like uh, Mickey mentioned, there are people available uh, near the sound booth who would love to pray with you, um, would love to ask you, uh, love to ask with you that, that God would, would be near you, that he would forgive you. So if you're newer here, let me just explain to you how we, we do communion. Um, there are four stations around the room. There's two in the back and there's two here in the front. And we tend to gather in, in groups of four or five around the table. And when you do gather in a group, just each take a turn of, of getting the bread and then each take a turn dipping it in the cup and then partake um, all together at once. Um, if you uh, are here and you are a follower of Jesus, you're welcome at the table. You don't have to be an, an official member of Christ's community to, to celebrate communion with us. Um, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you're welcome at his table um, here this morning. Um, if, if you're not there yet, if you're still wondering, I just, I'm not quite sure what I think about Jesus yet. Again, as always, we're so glad that you're here. And I just invite you to use this time to maybe just pray and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Or maybe in this moment you're saying, I, I think I do trust him. I'm ready to take, place my faith in him. Come, come, and receive communion as, as a marker of that and tell someone that that's what you've done. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The heart of the message of the gospel is that sins can be forgiven. So come now to the Lord's table to taste and touch the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Come when you're ready.